AI is able to generate creative things, right? So you're seeing this like GPT-3 and DALI, where the example is like, you know, you can type in a prompt and then it actually generates an image. And I think right now those are sort of just like the examples. Like, I don't think that's the ultimate usage, but the fact that it's able to do that is a strong signal that we're going to see a lot of creative work being generated by this. This is Startup Island Taiwan. Everything about Taiwan and cutting-edge technology, startup unicorns, and connections to the world. Welcome to the Startup Island Taiwan podcast. My name is John. I run the Asian Armature YouTube channel, and I am your host today. And today we have John Fan from Picolodge. Welcome to the studio. Thank you. Hi. Nice to meet you. So what is Picolodge? What does it do, and how does it make money? It's a mobile app, so you can download it on iOS and Android. It lets you create collages, greeting cards, you know, share your, your photos and videos in an interesting way. We see it as a way to strengthen relationships. So that's the emotional part of what we're doing is like if it's uh, Christmas or Valentine's Day or Mother's Day, like those are our big holidays where people want to connect with others. And so they create cards or collages or things they want to share with each other. So that's what this app does. And then we have over 250 million downloads of this app and we have uh, quite a number of paying subscribers. They subscribe for you know, premium features like uh, templates, stickers, additional features and content so that they can have access to all the things that we provided. And in addition to the PicLodge app, our company actually also builds a number of other apps as well. So we have apps for video editing, photo editing, as well as some other experiments that we're doing. Wow, that's pretty cool. So how did you guys come to start Picolodge? It was the start of the app era, right? So there was the Facebook app platform, and then shortly thereafter, Apple launched the iPhone. So at the time, we actually left our jobs to start building Facebook apps, right? This is kind of a risky and unusual thing to do at the time, but, you know, it was sort of a new era, the rise of apps, and, you know, also started to building some iOS app as well. And I think the motivation for the Picolodge idea was actually getting an iPad. So the iPad had just launched. It was a really nice surface, right? Because remember, the iPhones back then were quite small. But with the iPad, we thought that's a great device, you know, coffee tables, or you know, it's a great way to show off photos and to move around. And what we want to do is make the experience really intuitive, like you're touching your photos, and you're actually moving them around. And it was more sort of a demo that we created. And we actually had some other ideas in mind. So um, we were in the 500 Startup Accelerator program in the Bay Area. So this is in Mountain View. And we actually were focused more on sort of a document management type of idea, you know, taking photos of your whiteboard and then you know, managing documents. So more like we were like trying to be business minded, but we had built this collage app sort of as a demo. And so we launched it as well. And you know, we looked at it in the app store the next day and it had 3000 downloads, whereas our document management app had 10. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, wait, there's something really off here. And then the next day, you know, another three, 4,000 downloads. And by the end of the month, we had gotten 400,000 downloads for this collage app. Wow. And what we're really surprised by is that most of them were on the iPhone. And then we discovered that actually people's photos are on their phones, <laughs> not on the iPad. And there was actually a nascent need, a growing need to do interesting things with your photos on the phone. So from then, we dropped all of these you know, serious ideas that we had and said, okay, we found something in photo collages and this type of photo editing. And the app went to the top of the charts in you know, the U.S., 
in Mexico, in the UK, all these different countries. And what was interesting is like we hadn't yet translated it. So it was only in English. But since it's a fairly simple app, people were able to figure out how to use it. So people always talk about product market fit, right? A lot of this has to do with timing because, you know, at the time the iPhone was taking off, right? People were taking photos. Uh, Instagram had just launched. You know, they wanted to do things with it and they wanted to combine two photos and share it on Instagram. And there were a few apps at that time that did this. Some came from like larger companies that felt like they needed to do it in a more uh, professional way, Mm. right? And then some were made by people who were less engineering focused. So, you know, their apps crashed and didn't really work, right? <laughs> so we're, we're sort of the in-between. We're not too professional, but our app doesn't crash. <laughs> and so I think that was sort of the sweet spot at that time. Because if we tried to be more professional, maybe you know, a year later or six months later, we would have come out with something. And the professional ones also looked more professional, meaning like the icons looked very well built. And maybe they had a menu of like 15 or like five different selections, whereas ours was super simple. You could just add photos, move them around. That's about it. <laughs> Mm. Right. And our icons were hand drawn. Literally, they were hand drawn on a paper. And then we took a photo and you took that image and used that. Like, that's not really how you do graphic design. But at that time, that was what our scrappy team did. But that handmade feel like our app looked like it was handmade, hand drawn, handmade. And that look and feel actually helped us distinguish ourselves from the more professional apps. And it worked. So I think that was where we were able to get that initial traction. And then, you know, every week we launched a new release. So our sprint, you know, was on a one week basis. We just kept pushing up because how do you know if you have product market fit? If you're so busy, <laughs> you know, like you're too busy to answer that question or to even ask that question, you have product market fit, wow. right? You know, normally you have, if you're asking that question, you don't have it because you don't have time. So we were just getting requests like, can I change the color of the background? Can I add stickers? Can I save my results? Can I share it out to Instagram, right? Like all these things, these requests are coming in from users. So we were very busy doing all this. Anyway, that's sort of the initial situation. And then we were fortunate to get support from some Silicon Valley investors and grow the team a little bit and add all these features that users need. And you know, here we are 10 years later being a lot more sophisticated than it was before. But I think the core, we still try to keep that simplicity. So you talked a little bit about, earlier you mentioned that you were in 500 global or 500 startups. Yeah, they were called 500 startups then, yeah. <laughs> so how did you come to uh, Taipei? So in 2009... Basically, we left our jobs. And so there was about a year and a half in San Francisco during the Facebook app time. And then for both personal reasons, as well as for a change, you know, came to Taiwan and then meeting some other co-founders here, hiring some people. And that was the time when we were, you know, starting to search for iPhone apps to work on. And then we were accepted into the 500 accelerator. So then we moved back to the Bay Area. So our search was here. And then we went back to the, the Bay Area following that raise money. So it's been 10 years. How does Picolodge kind of stand out from all those other competitors? And what do you feel is kind of like the secret sauce that keeps people coming back? I think one thing is to just have an idea of what makes you different from the others or what is that main thing. So like Canva right, is primarily about graphic design. Pixar is, I would say it's about self-expression. So there's a lot of wild self-expression and like remixes and things like that. Instagram is, you know, sharing and, you know, seeing the world through other people's eyes. Going back to what I was saying earlier is about strengthening relationships so when would you use PicLodge? Well, obviously we want people to use it all the time, but the primary moments are when you want to feel more connected with people. That is a differentiator. So like, for example, the main flows in our app is when you go in, you select photos, select the big button. You know, you select a few photos that you just took. And then we have this fast mode where it magically creates a bunch of different collages for you. You can select one of those and then modify it further. The whole idea is that that type of flow is very centered around recognizing that the user you know, has photos of people mm-hmm. that they care about and helps them to make 
make that shareable. And what's created is something that looks kind of, you know, handmade. So it's not like it turns into something very polished and professional. I think that's not the look we're looking for. So that's where we fit in to give people that fun and creative way to make something that looks like they put time and effort into it. So the person receiving it feels like, oh, you made this for me. So there's a bit of Ikea effect and we lean more toward the visuals of being more authentic as opposed to being too polished. Yeah. You would say that emotional guidance or that emotional connection is kind of like how you judge decisions on what to do with the company, with like the app or strategic decisions with the company. Like you always want to like guide it within that context, right? That's a good point. Yeah. I mean, it took us a while to sort of formulate this, right? Sort of, you know, what is our product messaging or what is our product marketing guidelines? But yeah, I think this is, you know, what we have to keep reminding ourselves of. And there's a sort of a, a cultural aspect here too, is that in different countries, the difference of like in the US, for example, you know, Christmas cards are really big. You send out a bunch of Christmas greetings, you know, your photo, like maybe like a family photo and then like your announcements. And a lot of people still, you know, give actual greeting cards or that's sort of a part of the traditional thing. Whereas like in Taiwan, it's like, Hong Bao. Mm. So, so you just, you know, you know, you don't have to put a lot of time and effort into picking one out from the store. Right. right. Yeah. So I think some of these cultural differences, um, we've had to put a little extra effort into teaching our team and saying, Hey, this is what people do in Europe, right? In the UK or in Germany. This is what people do in the US and Canada. So like that sort of sharing, um, you know, I think helps our team understand our target users more. So basically our target markets, our larger markets are, you know, US, UK, uh, Japan, and then parts of Europe. And then we're pushing forward in, like Latin America. Yeah, those are our main markets right now. Obviously, you know, we're interested in growing elsewhere as well. Has there been any situations where you haven't done something because you went against this guiding principle of like emotional connection? I think we don't be limited by this. And we also are building new products as well. For example, some areas where we recognize that, oh, this is different than our main usage, right? For example, is, you know, small business and marketing. So we do see people who have like stores or like a yoga studio and they're using it to create brochures. And we want our app to be usable by these users. And some of our you know, team members will also actually think more about if we try to pursue this more, what should we do? And so we do some of these things, but at least we recognize, oh, this is actually quite different motivation than the family type of usage. Another, for example, is uh, schools. Picolage is also very popular in a lot of schools. So it's actually used in the curriculum in a lot of elementary schools in the U.S. So it's not generally on iPads. One thing that's interesting is that first it'll show up as an educational download in the App Store. It will also show up in these very weird ways where we'll get a thousand downloads or 5,000 downloads in one day, you know, in LA. And what's happening there is that the downloads aren't being done individually. The school districts have an IT manager. They decide here are the apps we're going to download on the iPads. And then they execute and all the downloads happen wow. at once on 5,000 iPads in the LA school district. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. You know, tell me a little bit about the team structure, kind of like how many offices you have. You mentioned you have Japan. Obviously, you have a Taiwan office. Do you have any offices anywhere else? So we don't have an office in Japan. Oh, okay. What I meant was that our, our, our users, that's our number three market oh, in bad. terms of number of users. Um, in terms of our team, we're a registered U.S. corporation, you know, Delaware C Corp, but we've grown out the team in Taiwan. So, you know, we have 75 uh, regular team members and another 15 interns and contractors, and most are based in Taipei. But we have a few people in Vancouver and then, you know, some people scattered around the world. So we're pretty much a Taiwan team. 
But what's interesting is that we've actually been fortunate to find some interesting diversity, you know, both in Taiwan as well as bringing people to Taiwan. So basically people from England or you know, Philippines or uh, India, right, who are either in Taiwan or willing to come to Taiwan. And so we have about 25 or so that have, you know, international background on our team out of 75 regular members. So that's been you know, something that has been interesting to build up in Taiwan, a team that's fairly international. You mentioned a little bit that Picolage is about like emotional connections and you have to kind of resonate with other cultures outside. So that's been part of the reason you wanted to bring in those people with those international backgrounds, mm -hmm. right? Yes. You know, one of the reasons why I really wanted to invite you to this podcast was because uh, Picolage seems to be one of those rare Taiwanese startups that has kind of like a significant consumer audience outside of Taiwan, right? So Taiwan's made a lot of components or electronics, but they're always kind of in the background. Picolage is right up there being used by the users. So like, why do you think it kind of happened that way, that you turned out to have this direct connection with the consumers? So, you know, sometimes when something works, it's hard to say exactly why it worked. I think, you know, we had diverse set of uh, co-founders, um, you know, one group in Southeast Asia, one group in Latin America, one group in Canada, <laughs> and that group in the U.S. But, you know, we, we all have Taiwan connections, so... We formed this company and also sort of a mix, you know, in gender as well. And also, you know, like I'm an engineer, right? But others, you know, have different backgrounds. So I think that sort of initial mix and then plus the people that we hire have this mix of, you know, whether it's perspectives on, on product or caring about users as well as, you know, building the technology or intuition for uh, interface. I think these are all things that somehow came together for this app. <laughs> What do you think are some of the things special about the startup ecosystem in Taiwan that you can't really get elsewhere? Like one of the big benefits of being here. In terms of the Taiwan ecosystem, I think it's something that's pretty obvious from, you know, the strong companies that Taiwan has, you know, the ones that are you know, in the headlines like the TSMCs and MediaTeks of Taiwan. You know, Taiwan is obviously very strong in engineering. But I think something that maybe is less known is that actually Taiwan has some really interesting uh, design and, and creative talent. That's not as, as obvious, but sort of the way I look at it is like in Asia, like, you know, Taiwan actually does have, you know, some more creative or interesting things happening here. So if you look at like a sleet, so this is the bookstore, but it's very focused on, you know, sort of handcrafted or, you know, sort of creative or curated items, like that sort of uh, lifestyle focused or design-focused retail or design-focused company, there's something here that enables that. Whereas like a place like Hong Kong would be, you know, more financial, more practical, even Singapore, right? I've heard friends from Singapore talk about how like, oh, they couldn't imagine Pick Lodge starting there <laughs> because uh, maybe like an e-commerce company like Carousel makes more sense there. But somehow this environment is more supportive and there's more talent here who's actually interested to have the chance. So, I, you know, it's not like our team is that big, but we've been able to find the people who have strong engineering talent and maybe could work for, you know, a TSMC, but actually they are excited to be able to work on something creative and to build something that brings delight to people around the world. So I think that's the key is like the environment in Taiwan is supportive of building creative things. Yeah, it's really interesting. I've noticed the same thing with regards to design and creativity and aesthetic beauty. Like there's a lot of focus on that in here in this culture. And that's kind of not really expected almost because people come here and they kind of expect science everywhere. Right, right. Engineering. So it's been really cool. What's been some of the challenges kind of managing an international team that's like so many different cultures? So what's been some of the challenges of managing that? 
Within Taiwan, I think it's actually quite a good place to run a company. I guess this is you know something that I want to share with listeners is that in terms of running a company here, first you know the city is safe, a lot of good infrastructure, um, and then you know talent, and they're able to the transportation is very convenient. So like just a lot of these details because when you compare with like running something in San Francisco, whether it's the cost, the inconvenience, and so forth, right? But I think the challenges would be that we still don't have enough connection with other markets. So so you know to do that, then let's say we've hired people in Canada. For for example, right, or in the US, but then there's the time zone difference and sort of bridging that has been a challenge. Um, that's one. The other one related to talent is that now that we're growing, we need the next layer of experienced talent. People who've been there and done this before, you know, taking a company from you know, 50 people to 500 people and beyond. And you tend to find those people in bigger startup hubs. So, you know, New York or San Francisco, I'm sure in Beijing, you have a set of people who have done this before, and maybe this is their second or third time around. So then when they join their next 50 person company and help grow it, they have a lot of knowledge about what type of noise do you expect? What type of chaos do you expect? Because if you take either somebody who's, you know, this is their first company, like they can learn, but their speed of learning, there's a lot of things to learn during that growth path of a company. Or if it's a bigger company person, they've never seen this type of chaos. They are expecting it to already have that structure, right? This type of maybe called the messy middle or this growth stage is quite tricky. And it's hard to find the people to navigate that. So that's sort of the thing that is our challenge now is we have a mix of the co-founders plus some management that we managed to hire. I think we need a few more to help us in this next stage of our growth. That's one of the things, I guess, with Taiwan's Taipei's kind of startup ecosystem being a little bit younger than others. So you haven't had that sort of kind of ecosystem to have built up right. that management talent. Right, exactly. So kind of from your perspective, you know, working in kind of this interesting space in the app ecosystem, like what are some of the relevant trends happening from your perspective that you're seeing that's kind of really top of your mind right now? I think with the shift to TikTok and you know, Instagram Reels sort of copying TikTok, that just overall people are sharing more videos than photos and you know there's going to be a stronger need for helping people to take their videos and to share them in a reasonable way so that's one is that shift and so you know we've been working on making more animated collages basically making easier for people to take their photos and turn it into something that's like a video we've also been building video editing apps and sort of like highlight detection to be able to take a long video let's say you take a three minute video on your phone you know no one's going to watch the whole three minutes but we're using ai to automatically find the most interesting parts of that and then we can share a great 20 second summary video and that's something that's really shareable and it's about your life. So that's one trend that we see shift from photo to video. I think another really interesting one is uh, generative AI. So the way machine learning has been applied to our lives is like you know, autocomplete, right? Or detection, like, is there intruder here or something like this? Like a lot of it is that, but there's this relatively new approach where AI is able to generate creative things, right? So you're seeing this like GPT-3 and DALI, where the example is like, you know, you can type in a prompt and then actually generates an image. And I think right now those are sort of just like the examples like i don't think that's the ultimate usage but the fact that it's able to do that is a strong signal that we're going to see a lot of creative work being generated by this and so the bigger effect will not necessarily be on like artists i think this is just you know the thing we that's most visible right now but will actually be on uh office work a lot of document creation like low-level legal work or writing business summaries of the stock market whatever like a lot of work that's being done out there with generative ai it will be able to create pretty reasonable results and i think that is going to have an impact on white collar work the way that automation has had on you know farm work and factory work and anyway, we'll see this is going to be a big uh, societal issue uh, perhaps going forward.
I would love to see like a picolage with generative AI and mm-hmm. you just be like, oh, I want to see this particular thing. You type it in. Yeah, definitely. So that's something that we want to be on top of now that these models are, you know, sort of not just locked up, but actually, you know, open source versions are becoming available and it's something that we can actually apply as well. That'd be cool. I'll be looking forward to it. Well, thank you so much, John, for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate it. And um, everyone go check out Picolage. Thank you. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's it for us today. 